So, Jay, I was thinking about baby names. Uh, wow, wow, Miles, should I be congratulating you? Uh, no, in, in the Marvel Universe, I mean. Ah, uh, in that case, my condolences. So, almost all of them have clear sources, but Scarlet Witch's kids have me stumped. Do you know where she got Billy and Tommy from? I thought she got them from that one guy, uh, you know, the one, the one with the babies instead of hands, it's his name. Yes, Master Pandemonium. No, 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 he just had the baby's souls. I don't think he named them. Honestly, we've pretty much hit the limit of my expertise on this one. Hey, Max, where did Billy and Tommy come from? Okay, okay, so, when a reality warper and a synthesoid love each other very much, they- No, no, we're solid on that part. We're just curious where Wanda and Vision got the names. Oh, well, Thomas is the middle name of the guy who created the original Human Torch android whose body was later used to construct the Vision. Why wouldn't they just have used his first name? Because it was Phineas. Fair enough. And William was for the Williams family, because Simon Williams, Wonder Man, is kind of the Vision's brother, and he considers himself to be part of the whole Williams clan. Which, big mistake, dude, but... Wait, so Billy's original name was... William Williams? Fortunately, no. The Vision never actually used Williams as a surname. Yeah, William Maximoff is a lot better. No, no, no. When they got married, Wanda took the Vision's last name. I thought Vision didn't have a last name. Oh, he doesn't. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Max Carlton. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 239 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to our guest expert this week, Max Carlton. Hi. It's good to be here. Welcome back. Yeah, you were on an episode with Jay a real long time ago, right? Yeah, we were talking about the X-Men anime, which was certainly a thing that exists. That was the first episode with all the teeth. Yes, just so, so many teeth. Oh, man, so brief aside, um, friend of us and friend of the show, Allison Barber, just showed me a book called The Infinite Farm, which is a kid's book designed to teach kids about the concept of infinity. But really, it's just this, like, Lovecraftian nightmare of crocodiles with infinite teeth and, like, a cow that has infinite feet wearing infinite shoes. And it just, like, would send any child spiraling into infinite madness. And I'm very pleased. Wow. Very top secret. Uh, oh, yeah. Cows with shoes. Yeah, yeah. that wasn't top secret. I have no idea what you're talking about, and I'm okay with that. Well, what we'll mostly be talking about this episode is an X-Men Avengers crossover from 1993 called Blood Ties. Because even though Fatal Attractions had, like, just happened, 1993 was the 30th anniversary of the first issue of both X-Men and Avengers. So Marvel figured, hey, that's a chance to do another crossover, to get some more sales for different books, to sell some fancy covers. Let's do it. And the result was, um, it's, it's okay. The, the story is pretty interesting. I don't know that it's five issues worth of interesting. There's a lot of fisticuffs in it. Oh yeah, like energy-powered flying fisticuffs. But before we dive into the aforementioned fisticuffs, maybe we should talk about what happened previously on X-Men. During the Fatal Attractions crossover, Magneto, the master of magnetism, did some very naughty and extremely mass-murderous things. So Professor Xavier decided it was time to prevent Magneto from doing further harm and erased Magneto's mind, leaving him a vegetative husk. Magneto left behind a number of former followers in the form of the Acolytes, mutant religious zealots who saw Magneto as a messianic figure. The Acolyte's first leader had been Fabian Cortez, who fell from grace after attempting to murder Magneto and nearly succeeding. The Acolyte's second leader was Exodus, who started out as Magneto's post-resurrection herald, and now speaks for his comatose boss. Meanwhile, Genosha, a green and pleasant land, is trying to work past its history of enslaving mutants for the benefit of, human, of the human ruling class. It's going sort of okay-ish. Okay, it's not going great. Also, meanwhile, Magneto's on-again, off-again son Quicksilver and the Inhuman Crystal got married, had a kid named Luna, and separated. 
Now Quicksilver is on X-Factor, Crystal is an Avenger, and their one attempt at a reunion didn't go real well as a result of machinations by said, ac- said acolytes. And in the last issue of The Avengers, Luna was kidnapped by shadowy figures. Also, also, meanwhile, it's 1993, so the Avengers, like, all have these amazing logo-covered bomber jackets. You, you just got to imagine that everyone is wearing bomber jackets now, and, like, six times out of seven, you'll be right. Sometimes the bomber jackets are wearing bomber jackets, and it just infinitely recurs on the infinite farm! Wait, did, did Master Pandemonium ever show up during this era, and if so, did his baby hands have their own tiny baby bomber jackets? We can only assume. I think it's probably canon. So, all right, the way we're going to be covering this story, basically this is one of those crossovers where we have a few plot lines and they don't actually really overlap until the end. And so it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Also, not a terrible lot happens in any given one of them. So we're kind of mashing all of the issues together and going back to something that we used to do fairly frequently on this and just going through through storylines and, and, and major points rather than trying to do things issue by issue. So how about we do a great big opening volley of credits? What do you say? Sounds good to me. If we must. So chapter one is Avengers number 368, Family Legacy, written by Bob Harris. Hey, he's the X-Men group editor. He's also the Avengers writer. Penciled by Steve Epting, inked and colored by Tom Palmer. X-Men number 26 is Civil Disobedience, written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Mac Ryan, and colored by Joe Rosas. And this is... I, w- I want to say, since we're going to be covering the plot pretty fast, I want to talk a little bit about Cubert art and say this is the point where I feel like scary Cubert kind of crystallizes, where everyone looks like super-possessed mannequins. Huh. Like, they've all got the really wide eyes and the kind of rictus grins. Maybe they're just really excited, or like, I don't know, on a lot of coke. Why not both? Uh, chapter three is Avengers West Coast number 101, Genosha, M- Monomore. Uh, right, uh, written by Roy Thomas, penciled by David Ross, inked by Tim, I'm sorry about this, Dizon, and colored by Bob Sharon. If Roy Thomas's name is familiar to you, that's because he was an absolute standby of Silver Age Marvel. And it's really, really interesting seeing the intersection and the intersections and collisions of writers on these and seeing the the story continue in some very, very different styles, including Thomas's, which is really fun and goes back to a lot of things I enjoy, but also feels very, very dated in the same way. It's, it's a really, it's an odd transition between them. It totally is, yeah. And, but in Chapter 4, we have somebody familiar. This is Uncanny X-Men number 307, Night and Fog, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Dan Green, and colored by Steve Buccolato and Kevin Summers. Finally, is Avengers number 369 of Kith and Kin, written by Bob Harris, penciled by Steve Epting and Jan Dersima, inked by Tom Palmer and Dan Hudson, and colored by Mike Rockwitz, Joe Andriani, Chris Mathis, and Pat Garrahy, um, and sporting a sweet embossed foil cover. And from what I understand, and Max, you're more of an Avengers guy, maybe you would know more about this than me, but... I think over the course of the Avengers 30th anniversary year, they actually had four different embossed covers, right? Oh, you are asking the wrong guy. I am not super familiar with the leather jacket era of the Avengers, mostly because they took away Hercules's sweet, sweet beard. Why would you do that, man? Actually, I know this one. Um, they, they did do a series of four. 360 had a bronze cover. 363 was silver. 366 was gold. And this 369 was platinum. Why they did it in increments of three, on the other hand, I have no clue. I don't know. I figure four covers, four quarters to a year. Why not? They could have just done 12 embossed covers and gotten into like the really nuanced bits of metal. Like they could have had a, I don't know, a, a cadmium cover or a zinc cover. Hmm. I, I like the idea of, of them doing 12 different metal covers for one issue. I mean, this was 1993. That kind of ridiculous variant situation wasn't unprecedented. But where are the cards in the covers? That's the real question. I know. I guess we left them behind in Fatal Attractions. That's the secret, Max. The covers are the cards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... I vote we just dive into the story, and like we were saying, we're going to do this sort of section by section, rather than going back and forth and making this a very confusing and boring podcast episode. It might still be confusing and boring. Follow your hearts, kids. All right, so in Hammer Bay, we open with Fabian Cortez cradling a 
baffled, but fairly well-drawn for an infant in a comic, uh, Luna Maximoff. Because Fabian Cortez studied at Magneto's knee, he knows that the proper thing for a villain to do is expound at length, and so he does. Um, we learn that his plan is to use Luna to lure her parents and grandfather to Genosha, and also that he thinks fire is real pretty. And in the narration leading up to his rambling, we have Genosha referenced as a green and pleasant land, which was, of course, the name of one of the first, if not the actual first, Genosha stories. So... I don't know, in the same way that there are so many stories that just reference little bits of Days of Future Past or the Dark Phoenix Saga, this seems to be what you do if you're going to reference Genosha. You just say the phrase, a green and pleasant land, as often as possible. It definitely shows up in more than one issue of this crossover, and gets dropped not only in narration, but by characters, which is one of those odd leaps. It's the focus totality of Genosha's marketing department. (laughs) I really think we should work the phrase focus totality into our day-to-day conversation more. I love it. I mean, I'm definitely putting it in my next cover letter. Uh, But meanwhile, on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, we have a bunch of bureaucrats who are meeting up to A, fill the reader on what's been going on in Genosha, and B, talk about what to do about it. I've sort of come to think of these guys as the shadow government. But not like British style where there's actually a shadow government. Well, they do fly around in a very, very conspicuous shadow government helicopter. The helicarrier is not subtle. Ah, but it casts a long shadow. Hey. The whole world freaked out, but that was especially true in Genosha, which was still very tense. There's still just a slightly stable detente between the former human ruling class and the former mutant slave class. They're getting along, but just barely. And when all your power goes out, apparently you riot. It occurs to me, should we do a brief recap of Genosha for folks who are just coming in now? I I think that that it's probably worth touching back on because we haven't been there in a while. Sure. I mean, the comic feels like it needs to remind us every 10 seconds what the deal with Genosha is, so. Well, it's a green and pleasant land is the important part. Not anymore, it's not. It's on fire. And it never really was. It was ironic. But yeah, Genosha was kind of an apartheid metaphor. Before the Extinction Agenda, before the X-Men got involved, the humans enjoyed a life of luxury because the mutants were all enslaved as mutates, which were sort of mindless-ish thanks to some genetic engineering, and they were stuck in these superhero costumes that they could never take off, and it really, really sucked for them. They were more speed skatery than superhero-y, I think. Eh, potato, potato. And with the X-Men's help, the mutates rebelled against the human government, and then Cameron Hodge, who's the, the older OG X-Factor villain, showed up and took over for a while and got involved in that. And for a while, Havoc, um, with no memory, was working for the human establishment there, got really complicated, the X-Men came back and overthrew the human government again. And now, in theory, Genosha is in the process of rebuilding and trying to establish some degree of equality, but they're doing a piss-poor job of it. We went into Genosha politics at somewhat more length than a couple other episodes, and I will link to those in the visual companion to this one, which you can find at explainthexmen.com if you're listening on a podcatcher. So something that interests me about the current Genosha crisis is that it takes place entirely off-panel. We only hear about it once it's turned into a full-blown disaster, as Gyrick and Cooper and Nick Fury are talking about what to do about it. And I wanted to ask what you guys thought about that, that narrative technique of having this big, important event just mentioned as something that's already occurred. I think it works because when we left Genosha, it was basically a powder keg. You can't really just be like, okay, we knocked a whole bunch of buildings on the spider guy wearing a human cardboard cutout suit. Now everything's cool. Y'all are good. That's not really a good position to just leave a country in. I think it makes sense. Everything's on fire when you look back at it 15 minutes later. Oh, it occurs to me, we should add, um, in terms of recapping, I forgot to mention when we were talking about Genosha, is that Genosha is also the site of a current outbreak of the gradually spreading legacy virus, which we found out when we last visited it in um, X-Factor, I believe. But um, so as far as as far as showing it off panel, I think it um, works really well because having it be detached from not only what we as readers are seeing, but what the characters are actually seeing and encountering kind of underlines the extent to which all of our interaction with Genosian politics and with the Genosian nation has been the U.S. kind of going in blind and meddling. 
Hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty much that. And in fact, one of the goals of our triumvirate of human bureaucrats is to make sure that doesn't happen again, to make sure that the Avengers, the typical human meddlers across most of the world, don't get involved in this already incredibly unstable political situation. Now, we usually cover the X-Men, so you may not know, as I did not when I went into this and learned pretty early on, that the Avengers at this point were not actually affiliated with the U.S. They were operating under the banner of the U.N., yeah, the Avengers' legal capacity does kind of change a lot. They had some issues with why you would send Henry Peter Gyrick to be the guy who deals with them on behalf of the U.S. government is just asking for trouble. But yes, at this point, they were working for the U.N., although that is not particularly long-lived either. The Avengers are a very hard group to corral due to the fact that it's mostly a dumping ground for people whose books have ended. <laughs> and it's got more than one god typically on the roster at any given time. Oh yeah, and that's not even getting into the Celestials and lots and lots of aliens. Now, if you're used to the Avengers from the MCU, you might think of them as the place where all of the big A-listers go. That was not always the case, and the lineup of Avengers at this point is motley and peculiar we'll go into that in a little more depth once they show up for now they're just being being spoken of and max you mentioned um why the question of why anyone would ever want henry peter gyrick as a liaison liaison to anything and that's a question that comes up again immediately because the president has decided that gyrick is the guy to send to genosha to try to broker a peace settlement along with a special representative who is unnamed but whom we are assured is an expert in human mutant relations and is therefore probably going to be charles xavier Spoiler, yes. Couldn't be Moira McTaggart, huh? Is she still getting over a case of being evil at this point? Or that was a Shadow King thing, right? She's mostly over it. She's replaced that really tight bodysuit for the most part with a really tight bodysuit with a lab coat over it. I think that's how you can tell. Uh, She's mostly really busy investigating the legacy virus and getting ignored despite being the most qualified person to do so. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in being grumpy about Moira McTaggart mode right now, so... Fair enough. Well, Gyrick does indeed go to find Charles Xavier, and Xavier says, yeah, I'll totally help, but I'm going to bring my good friend, Hank McCoy, the Beast. Hey, Henry Peter Gyrick, you remember Hank McCoy? He was on the Avengers, and he was a real pain in the ass to you because you were a real pain in the ass to him. Also, he was stoned literally all the time during that era. Yeah, tracks, yes. He was on the team with another Hank, and that's always awkward. Yeah, you got to differentiate yourself somehow. And actually, this kind of reminds me of, I don't know if, if you guys have experienced this, but you know, like when you go back to your hometown after going away to college and you sort of find yourself falling into the old role you used to be in and falling into some of your old personality traits because like that's what everybody expects. I feel like that's what Beast does here. Like he becomes much more of that goofy Avengers era character when he's talking to Gyrick, and I kind of dig that. The Avengers does sort of have a problem where a lot of the characters are scientists, so they all have to find kind of sub-roles within the scientist archetype. Uh, that's why you get to see some pretty severe personality swings between characters' main books and their appearances in The Avengers. I wonder, too, to what extent Beast's characterization here and in X-Men in general is shifting based on his appearance in the X-Men animated series, because that had been going on for long enough at this point that we're seeing ads for it in the books. And things like the Hawaiian shirt that he's wearing are things that I really associate with his appearance on the show. I don't know, because like at the same time in the comic, we see Beast very much going in the direction of I need to stop being a superhero and start being a researcher. So I kind of feel like his appearance here is a bit of an exception to that direction. Again, I think you're right with it being a thing where he's reverting around his old friends and especially around someone who's as good of a straight man as Henry Peter Gyrick is. The straightest of straight men. So... We've got the th those three on this team, but we've also got three other members on this diplomatic team. Two of them we've seen before in connection to Genosa. Those are Jenny Ransom and Philip Moreau. Philip Moreau is the son of the late gene engineer, the guy who was responsible for engineering and enslaving the mutates. Jenny Ransom was, was Philip's childhood best friend who was, was a mutant who was turned into a mutate and who escaped with Philip and is, is now basically an exiled um, activist for Genosian mutate rights. But there's someone else here, and I have no idea who this dude is. This is a U.S. agent, and as far as I can tell, he's off-brand Captain America. Oh boy, U.S. agent. This guy is the worst. He's kind of, uh, I mean, speaking of straight men, 
U.S. Agent is a lot of fun because the basic concept behind him is super right-wing Captain America. Ah. Yuck. Like from the Ultimates. No, no. Ultimates Cap wasn't that right-wing. Ultimates Cap was mostly just really deeply traumatized. It's been a while since I've read the Ultimates. I remember some not super great stuff. It's it's very specifically dated to, yeah. you know, yeah. early 2000s. There's a bit where Cap gets Hulk to fight some aliens by telling him that the aliens called him gay. So that's... I remember that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mark Millar. Stop being Mark Millar all the time. A lot of Cap's characterization in that series struck me. I mean, it it's... Ultimate's Cap is interesting because he comes across as much more disconcerted and aggressively out of time and sort of honestly dealing with, you know, the PTSD of having been in World War II a couple weeks before than a lot of the other iterations of Captain America, which is, is a really interesting take on the character. And I think I took a lot of his un- unpleasantness and a lot of his more abrasive characteristics as kind of existing under that umbrella. Mm. Okay. Well, fair enough. But but I want to hear more about U.S. Agent. So U.S. Agent, his main character trait is that he is right-wing Captain America and that he, even though he's generally put in charge of teams by the government, no one ever listens to him. Good. So he's kind of the guy you send in to straighten a team out and then just everyone ignores him and does what they want. Okay, so it kind of makes sense that even though the Avengers aren't supposed to get involved in this mission, the government would send U.S. agent. Yeah, and he's written with various degrees of sympathy of sympathy depending on how left wing whoever's writing him is he can vary between a guy who genuinely means well but thinks that the hardline approach is the best way to get anything done to just the worst person ever here he's just sort of i don't know a dude who looks like captain america like he doesn't really have much of a personality in this story He's sort of in his wheelhouse of if he's with a government person, he's just going to do whatever they say. So he's being sort of overridden by Henry Peter Gyrick here. Oh, that makes sense. So, yeah, the uh, these folks do head to Genosha, but Xavier has got a secret message for everybody's favorite band of Merry Mutant Misfits. Right. He sends the X-Men to head over secretly as well and, you know, meet him there, check out the situation, etc. And the X-Men are, like, angsting a lot over what's going on, especially Quicksilver. I mean, all of this violence is partially being done in the name of his father, Magneto. That's what Fabian Cortez is telling everybody in Genosha, is that Magneto would want the mutates to kill all the humans and stuff. And plus, you know, his daughter. She's been kidnapped. And what Cyclops tells Quicksilver here makes me so happy for reasons that will momentarily become clear. Quicksilver... I'm probably the last person you expected to hear this from, but I've learned in matters like this, you've got to follow your heart. Oh my. That's right. Before Cyclops told Dracula to follow his heart, he told Quicksilver. He was just warming up for that important, climactic, heart-following, advice-giving situation with the Lord of the Undead. Quicksilver is a good warm-up for Dracula. Cyclops, telling white-haired jerks to follow their hearts since 1993. Well, anyway, after Cortez broadcasts to the world about having Luna and about how everything is terrible and he's your great big jerk, Xavier's group does indeed get to Genosha, and the narration once again describes it as a green and pleasant land. Take a drink. Their jeep is immediately attacked, and as it turns out, this is not an unexpected ambush. Xavier actually arranged to have the mutant underground ally, Renee Maycomb, and her human and mutant rebels attack so that Xavier and Beast could escape their human escort and learn more about what's going on. Beast and Renee have this kind of flirty, scholastic uh, thing going on. I like it. It's neat. It's really cute. I, I enjoy it a great deal. It's also just nice to see Beast being happy for like 30 seconds. It happened so seldom in the 90s and, you know, after. It's, it, I like the idea of, and, and they, they don't get this far, but someday I really want to see a Marvel Universe flirt conversation where they're like, so, you know what our air dust numbers add up to? And I don't know, maybe it's 69 or something. That's my point. Nice. That's that's not actually very funny. I just think that air dust numbers are a really good way to indicate that there are, there is major, major nerd flirting going on. 
I don't even know what that is. I guess I'm not enough of a nerd. Okay, so there's this one mathematician who co-authored a ludicrous number of pages. And um, your Erdos number, if you're a published mathematician or scientist, is the number, is basically your six degrees of Kevin Bacon number, how how many connections it takes to um, connect you back to a paper co-authored with Erdos. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. I think I'm pretty far away, probably. I don't know that you have actually published any collaborative papers. So, yeah, that would be infinity. Yeah, yeah, that's why. I guess I'm off to the infinite farm. Anyway, I kind of like Renee Maycomb and this this group of rebels. Like, their deal is sort of fascinating. Many of us here, scientists, lawyers, social workers, realized the government reforms intended to heal our country were not working. Laws written on paper cannot undo years of ingrained social behavior. Hmm. I mean, it's a solid point. Especially given that the government was doing very little to, say, seek input from mutates or directly address or institute reparations or any of the things that they really should have been doing. Like the, like the fixes were mostly on paper and not actually matters of policy. They dropped a building on the giant spider guy. It's fine. <laughs> Mission complete. Well, in the meantime, U.S. agent got away from the fake attack pretty quickly because, I don't know, he was using his conservative vision or something. And he meets back up with Xavier and Beast and Renee Maycomb, and he just sort of joins up with them. He's not particularly pissed. Well, he, he snuck along with them Newsy style under one of the trucks. They've got a lot of characters to juggle here. Everyone just sort of goes where they need to be. Well, what they find, and I guess where they need to be, is an underground concentration camp full of mutates and guarded by the magistrate elite, the soldiers who formerly worked for the human supremacist government. Awkward. Also, we find out here that Fabian Cortez has declared himself president of Genosha. Yeah, which, I mean, I guess makes sense. You know, he killed the previous governmental body. He's now trying to tell Genosha what it should do, and also he's just a jerk that does things like that. But it's interesting to me that Cortez has human magistrates imprison part of the mutate population. Like, the magistrates talk about how the mutates are just there because they might have the legacy virus and maybe that's going to spread to humans or something, but that's a weird thing for Cortez to do. It's almost like he's doing it just as one more way of stoking hatred between humans and mutants. Well, Cortez doesn't actually care that much about mutants. He cares about power. The Acolytes were mostly a means to that. So here he mostly just seems to be making a power grab. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I mean, I guess I just figured he'd be a little more, I don't know, smart, subtle about it. But then again, this is Fabian Cortez. That's not really his wheelhouse. Also, the rest of the party catches up at this point. So all of the original Team Xavier is now here, um, meaning that his efforts to sneak away were pretty much for naught. Yeah, everyone just magically shows up, which I, I guess, fine. How big is this country anyway? <laughs> right? Three or four blocks. <laughs> so, yeah, this faction of the good guys is now fighting a whole bunch of magistrates, and there's a big mutate riot going on around it. Things are utterly in chaos, which makes it a perfect time to check in with some other characters entirely. So what are the Avengers up to at this point? Well, they want to go to Genosha to help out, because they did sort of miss the whole first round of this. But they are stopped by Nick Fury, who is wearing a lot of leg belts. He has to be standing that wide to stop the leg belts from getting tangled up with each other, right? That, like, there's a lot of straps going on there and, and like, a head sock. And he's going through one of those phases where he kind of clearly seems to want a superhero costume, but not quite to take the full plunge. I mean, he has a facial buttress. You don't just have a facial buttress. <laughs> right. Well, and the Avengers are especially sad once they realize that Luna may be a target, and in fact totally is, because the Luna that was in Avengers HQ was actually a mutate shapeshifter posing as Luna. Who subsequently explodes. How long was this mutate posing as Luna? Because that's some intense commitment to spying. Oh, God, yeah, Luna's real small, so I don't want to think too much about that. Blah. It's fine. Crystal has elemental powers that protect them. But 
no sooner are they free of the exploding baby spy than S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up with all of their techie-techie S.H.I.E.L.D.ness to say, Avengers, seriously, don't go to Genosha. Your job right now is to not go to Genosha. We don't want to have to, like, get our asses kicked by you. The Avengers collectively yell, you're not my real dad, and Crystal, Scarlet Witch, Black Knight, Captain America, and Cersei escape and take a Quinjet to Genosha as the others cover their escape. Who are these guys? Real quick. We know Crystal is Quicksilver's ex-wife. She's an inhuman. Scarlet Witch is Wanda Maximoff. Quicksilver's twin sister, Magneto's on-again, off-again daughter, Black Knight? All right. So Black Knight is a lot of people. I believe this is the Dane Whitman version of the character. I mostly know him from the later uh, Captain Britain in the MI-13 run. He's got a heart made out of stone and various swords that are various states of cursed. Uh... I don't believe he's wielding one of his cursed swords now. He's wielding an energy sword because the 90s, but he usually has a sword that drinks blood and, you know, is evil. Okay, first of all, that's awesome. Second of all, two questions. First, this is the guy whom Quicksilver saw the pictures of Crystal with in in that one X-Factor issue, right? I I think so, yeah. And second, is his heart actually made out of stone or was that a, a, a metaphor? Oh, no, it's literal. At one point, a character's like, but how does your blood pump? And he's like, magic? (laughs) Okay. I love comic books. We're solid on Captain America. We've covered Captain America. It is still Steve at this point, right? It is still Steve. Excellent. Okay, so civil disobedience, generally awesome. What about Cersei? Who boy. She's a eternal... It's a huge, big thing that I'm not actually super familiar with. She's got a lot of power. She's like a fundamental part of the universe. There's a whole bunch of miniseries published about them. All you really need to know about Eternals for purposes of this is that they're not actually externals, but they are basically immortal, super-powered humanoids, so the difference is largely academic. Well... Anyway, these folks all head to Genosha, and when they get there, they break up a giant human mutant street murder fight. And it's fascinating because both sides, both the humans and the mutates, see the Avengers as obviously being there to help them. The humans figure, oh hey, it's the Avengers. They're the enforcers of the status quo. And as humans, we are the status quo. And the mutates are like, hey, they have the Scarlet Witch, the daughter of our lord and savior Magneto. They must be here to help protect us from the terrible racist humans. Mostly what the Avengers and Mutates see is skeletons because Exodus shows up and just fries all of the humans with his very ill-defined powers. The Avengers promptly start a fight with Exodus, and that fight covers a good deal of the crossover. It goes on for like an issue and a half. Um, War Machine and Exodus hit each other a lot, and then Exodus and Cersei hit each other a lot, and then War Machine and Exodus hit each other some more, and then Cersei and Exodus hit each other some more, and... That goes on a lot, and uh, they say amazing things because it's a Roy Thomas issue. Yeah, like at one point, uh, War Machine, as he's attacking Exodus, says, Enough of your rap, Exodus. Let's rumble. That's amazing. Everyone should talk like that at all times. Also, like, I guess Exodus tries to psych War Machine out because War Machine is, of course, James Rhodes, uh, who's black. And Exodus is talking about how, like, oh, yeah, mutants should be the master race. Just like, I don't know, white people should be the master race. And it's like, dude, Exodus, I know you're evil, but but dude. What the fuck, man? Seriously, what's your deal, dude? I it's 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 one of those kind of icing on the cake things. This is a guy who we know is happy to commit various levels of genocide. You know, casual raci- racism shouldn't be that much of an increase. But yeah, like it makes him feel concretely much worse. It's like the racist icing on the racist cake. I hate that cake. That's my least favorite kind of cake. Ooh, that's because his anti-human sentiment isn't actually racism because mutants are the less privileged of those two classes. Okay. Uh, that that actually makes sense. And raci- racism, as as a term, specifically refers to bigotry and bias that reinforce systemic um, systemic dec- discrimination and um, and and privilege. Privilege Okay. Uh, well, social justice, no prized. Well, anyway. Uh, like we were saying, the fights take up a huge portion of the crossover. The main thing I want to highlight is that John Romita Jr. draws big energy blasts super well, so well done, John Romita Jr., although his cheekbones are truly horrifying by this point in his artistic career. I do like that Crystal and Wanda just kind of watch 
you know, Cersei and War Machine and Exodus throw all this big energy at each other. And Crystal's like, hey, Wanda, do you want to just like find my daughter while they're busy with this? And Wanda's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, they literally just walk off at one point. It's great. They do. Now, one interesting little thing is that the Black Knight is, of course, still around trying to figure out what to do. And he keeps thinking, I recognize Exodus. Who is this guy? How do I know him? And there was actually a one shot later in the 90s called Black Knight colon Exodus where we learned that the Black Knight's Crusades-era ancestor, who he sort of, like, went into the body of through weird time travel and did the Crusades because he's a big jerk, that old Black Knight was actually buds with Bennett Dupere, who was Exodus before he was Exodus, which is to say, before he got involved with Apocalypse, it's a whole thing and it doesn't matter, but goddammit continuity. Let's go back stateside for now and look at the Avengers who have headed to the UN. Um, These are a bunch of Avengers and West Coast Avengers, the ones who were left behind, and they've decided they are going to take their grievances straight to the UN. They are led by Hawkeye, and if you're mostly familiar with Hawkeye through the movies and or the Matt Fraction run, 90s Hawkeye is different. 90s Hawkeye is all pointy masks and yelling. Yeah, he he really, he does not have an inside voice, and he definitely doesn't have an inside personality. He's just angry at everything and everyone all the time. I mean, I guess it makes a little bit of sense. From what I understand, continuity-wise, his wife, Mockingbird, died, like, right before all this stuff happened. Yeah, she came back later. Like, way later. So, Black Widow sort of takes over from Hawkeye once he's, you know, yelled himself out. She says to the assembled UN, From this day forward, people, the Avengers are out of politics and back into the art of avenging. I'm not going to try to do a Russian accent. I don't think Natasha has one all that consistently, but good for you, Natasha. This probably won't bite you in the and this probably won't come back to bite you at any point. I disagree strongly with her assertion that avenging is fundamentally apolitical, but that's not my wheelhouse anyway. So the Avenger, whoever's explaining the Avengers can have that argument. Yes, so now the Avengers have uh, quit working for the UN in the middle of a crossover. So what about the X-Men? I feel like we should talk about the X-Men, given that that's one of the words in the name of our podcast. Okay, so not counting Professor and Xavier and the Beast, who we've been following, here's what the X-Men have been up to. All of the X-Men, except for Jubilee and Psylocke, who for no particular reason stay home, take the Blackbird, head to Genosha. Revanche is also there, but she's not going to get any lines in the story. She's just kind of there. And Quicksilver is along with them, too. I kind of feel like that sums up Revanche. She's just kind of there. Ouch. It's so unfortunate. I want to love Revanche. But aside from, like, her origin, her legacy virus reveal, and her retcon and her death, she does nothing. Like, she's barely a presence in any story that isn't directly about her. And even those stories are more directly about Psylocke. Ouch. Uh, Quicksilver has a line which I find really interesting. What we see in Denosha is my father's dream made flesh with all its bloody consequences. Which, it gets mentioned a few times throughout the course of this crossover that this is Magneto's dream. I feel like in contrast to Xavier's dream. Yeah, the idea that like this is sort of the the ideological version of, of Magneto's actions. And that is fascinating because Magneto, he wanted some fucked up shit, but it's just getting taken so much further than Magneto would even at his most megalomaniacal. Yeah, I mean, Magneto is eventually going to end up taking over Genosha. He is going to be, it's, it's effectively its dictator. Um, and the Genosha we see under him is going to be very different from the Genosha that's here and it's going to be very different from any of the visions for Genosha that the players coming into the situation have. So Quicksilver is understandably worried about his daughter, but the X-Men point out that Cortez is desperate. So Luna's probably safe. She's his one lifeline in the situation. Also, she gets kidnapped kind of a lot. Like you should be kind of used to this by now. She definitely got kidnapped. The only other time she's crossed over with the X-Men. That's like being Franklin Richards. Yup, you just sort of get used to it. You just sort of, like, learn to sleep while sitting up and tied to a chair. The X-Men land on Genosha, and Rogue's having kind of a rough time because, A, the first time she was here, she was treated, um, shall we say, quite poorly by the magistrates. And also, the first time she was here was with Logan. And remember, this is, Logan is, has only been gone from the X-Men for, like, an issue. This is right after he quit, so they're all really feeling his absence. They're attacked almost immediately by 
the Unforgiven. These are former mutate slaves whom Cortez has assigned to track down and kill their former masters, and I guess anyone who would ally with those former masters or attempt to stop the current violence. Wait, the Unforgiven? I thought that was track four on Metallica's Black Album. I used to love that song. So Quicksilver points out that Magneto taking this path led to his current vegetative state, which was kind of a secret up until this point. So that cat's out of the bag. Now, on one hand, the Cortez they're fighting turns out not to actually be Cortez. He's a shapeshifter. But on the other hand, Cortez himself was also still somehow listening in the whole time. So, so much for that ace up their sleeves. But when Cortez reveals that it was just a shapeshifter wearing Cortez's face, like, I love the way it works. His Cyclops is like, I'm going to wipe that smile off your face, Cortez. And Cortez replies, or I should say the mutate who looks like Cortez replies. I'll go you one better than that, mutant. I'll wipe off my entire face. And I'd like to point out that this is the issue in the crossover written by Silver Age writer Roy Thomas. I really enjoy Roy Thomas's writing. It's so cheesy and so wonderful. This also may be the closest I've ever seen to the get over here and fuck me yourself, you coward meme showing up in a comic. <laughs> Maybe you should provide some context for that, Shay. It, it's just dialogue that like, go fuck yourself, get over here and fuck me yourself, you coward. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, most of the X-Men go and rescue some of the humans who are trapped in the city who have been attacked by mutates, and the narration reminds us, you know what this land is? Green and pleasant. Take a drink. Should you be drinking absinthe? It just occurred to me that that might be the closest we can get to green and pleasant beverage-wise. Oh, yeah. It's better than, like, I don't know, pucker. Yeah, your other options are what? Midori, pucker, chartreuse is pleasant. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So basically anything but pucker. So meanwhile, Gene and Quicksilver are searching the sewers for Cortez, and and Gene sums him up pretty succinctly. His actions are even more disgusting when you realize he sent hundreds of people from both sides of the conflict to their deaths in the name of a cause he doesn't even believe in. He saw the misery here as the perfect cover to hide from Magneto, and he didn't care who got hurt, who died in the process. All he cares about is the continued survival of Fabian Cortez. And, in fact, they find Cortez hiding in the sewers with Luna. Um, and they, they do that shortly after they've met up with, with the Scarlet Witch and Crystal, and there is there is a brief estranged spouse sewer reunion, which Quicksilver has very romantic feelings about, but then Cortez shows up to ruin it. Fort, dubiously, fortunately, Exodus is there to save the day, and Exodus shows up in the sewers, says, fuck all y'all, and straight up kills... Fabian Cortez. He just murders him. Which, good, because that guy will not shut up. There's so much dialogue from Cortez before Exodus shows up and, you know, does the world a favor. Unfortunately, he apparently didn't do it very thoroughly because Fabian Cortez does come back at least one more time in, like, the Joseph version of Magneto, Magneto miniseries, a number of years later, for some goddamn reason. I think this would have been a great way for Cortez to just permanently die. Part of that might just be because... I hate Fabian Cortez. Like, he's a good villain. He's an effective villain. And so that means I hate him. I'm just really, really into really noxious villains abruptly going out like chumps. Like, I think that's a really effective narrative tool. And I think it works really well here. Now, Exodus, in addition to stealing all of Cortez's tendency towards soliloquy, which he piles on top of his own, has a big master plan going here. He encases Genosha in a big sparkly energy dome. This happens so much in the Marvel Universe, you would think that they would have specifically developed tools to deal with this. Yeah, like Tony Stark would just make some high-tech pin that you could pop the dome with. Not so much. Now, the Avengers and the X-Men finally meet up, a good way of the way into this crossover, having successfully or at least temporarily stopped humans and mutates from murdering each other. And they're interrupted by one of my favorite Silver Age tropes um, that I haven't seen a lot of recently, which is the giant, angry, disembodied head of Charles Xavier. Exactly. He says, all right, I have a plan. Also, I'm a big pink head. So that's a thing. And so everybody goes to the same place just as Exodus is about to murder Magneto's entire remaining family for, you know, betraying Magneto. Also, he's going to murder, like, millions of other people. The plan he has is so fucked up, and I think so villainously fascinating and compelling. I mean, there's a slight purge element to it. Everyone is going to die unless the mutates kill the humans. I haven't seen the purge movies. I think that's the plot, right? Mutates have to kill humans. Uh, yeah, Exodus is, like, a major character in it. Mm-hmm. But 
yeah, I mean, and Exodus is saying that this is what Magneto would want. All I am doing is carrying out Lord Magneto's will. And this right here, like, I don't care how much character assassination you give Magneto, Magneto would never do anything this bad. He would never threaten to kill all the mutants in a country unless they right then decide to murder all the humans around them. I mean, he might murder all the humans, but he wouldn't, like, threaten to kill all the mutants for not doing so. Silver Age Magneto would. This also seems like a really hard thing to enforce. I mean, how do you know at a certain point who's a human and who's a mutate if they're not actively using their powers? I mean, I guess the mutates have those colorful jumpsuits still, but eh, I guess that would do it. Well, Exodus's powers are super ill-defined at this point, so maybe he can do that too. Make all the humans glow so the mutates will know who to kill? Yeah, exactly. Just put big arrows over their heads or something. Just like in the Purge movies. Just like in the Purge movies. There's another big fight. Um, Everyone punches everyone, everyone yells a lot, Revanche gets knocked out real fast, and finally Professor X distracts Exodus with a Dark City-style psychic beam while Black Knight stabs Exodus from behind, effectively taking him down. I do like that someone ends a fight by stabbing someone else with an energy sword, and it's not Psylocke or someone Psylocke-esque. Oh, that's true. It's just the Black Knight with his apparently non-cursed lightsaber. So the conflict is mostly over, and Professor X talks to the mutates about how, hey, you can't just become your oppressors, damn it. Okay, but it would be really nice if their oppressors were removed from power and they were given some degree of agency in their situation. Genosha's politics are really fucked up. I say we just have that Renee ladies group take over. They have humans and they have mutates and they have a cool leader who could maybe just be part of a ruling council. I feel like they would do a much better job than literally anyone has up until this point. I mean, a bunch of confused puppies and a potato would do a better job than pretty much anyone has up to this point. Potato for ruling party of Genosha. Give the potato a crown, a little potato crown, potato sized. So on his way, you know, doing the Silver Age villain escape, Exodus blasts Quicksilver, but Black Knight does, you know, TV CPR, so everyone's fine. Yeah, and that's actually kind of a big-ish deal in that Crystal was, you know, romantically involved-ish with the Black Knight, and of course, she's Quicksilver's ex. So, um, yay, the Black Knight didn't let his romantic rival die. He's uh, covered the bare basics of human decency. Yeah, he's got a lot of cursed swords. I, I don't know what that has to do with it, but I'm sure it makes you a better person somehow. So everyone's fine and happy except for Jenny Ransom, who is super pissed that Professor X has been keeping his mutation uh, close to his vest, so to speak. This isn't so this has happening a lot during this era, and it really feels like they're setting Professor Xavier up to come out publicly as a mutant. But he's not actually going to for a good seven or eight years. Yeah, it won't be until um, Morrison's run when Professor X comes out as a mutant, right? Yeah, although it'll technically be Cassandra Nova possessing Professor X's body. He can't even do it then. He has to have his weird, like, psychic womb sister do so. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird note for the character that he stays in the mutant closet for as long as he does. Right? So, yeah, that is the X-Men Avengers crossover, Blood Ties, where mainly a lot of people punch each other, Exodus kills Fabian Cortez, but not really, and the Avengers quit the UN. So, I want to go from here to part of part of why I wanted to have Max on the show, because you've, you've, folks, you've heard him on, on before, but um, Max is our go-to Maximoff expert. Like, when we have questions about that family, when we have questions about their weird history— He's the guy who we text. And one of the things that this crossover really underlined for me is that these are characters who were connected to this figure who we've been covering as a central X-Men character since the very first episode, um, but whose lives are largely lived out in other titles. And so I was I was hoping, given that that Quicksilver and um less so the Scarlet Witch, but that the, in, in general, the Maximovs and, and Magneto's extended family are at the center of this crossover. Um, Max, that we might um, impose on you to give us a little bit more background as to what these guys get up to when they're not explicitly being involved in mutant affairs or crossing over with X-Men. It's funny that you use, it's funny that you use the word affairs because that is a lot of what they get up to. Uh, so. Only I do with wanna... each other in the ultimate universe. Oof, ugh. Let's not get into that too much. But 
These characters actually spend a lot of time separated after a certain point. After the Cap's kooky uh, quartet era of the Avengers, where basically all of the standard Avengers quit and Cap had to find basically the first three people who'd show up to become the new Avengers. Eventually, Quicksilver does marry Crystal, moves to the moon with her. Uh, Wanda, on the other hand, stays on the team for a lot longer. She ends up heading out to the West Coast to start her own branch after the very, very good uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries, which details, you know, the two of them getting married and Wanda absorbing the entire power of a town of witches who were performing a human sacrifice to bring the sun god back into the world into her womb so she could give birth to twins. What? As you do. <laughs> yeah, every every cold open that has involved Maximovs has had input from Max. <laughs> <laughs> that is a whole thing, man. But what I think is pretty interesting is something that came up not directly before this, but fairly right before this was a storyline that really shows off that what Exodus is truly lacking is good timing. Because in 1990, there was a West Coast Avengers story called Darker Than Scarlet. Uh, This was following up on the retcon where... Uh, the Scarlet Witch found out that her children weren't actually real because a big part of the miniseries an almost aggressive part of the miniseries where she gets pregnant is people repeatedly telling Wanda how real her babies are because I feel like they saw the retcon upcoming. She actually goes to Doctor Strange to get, you know, confirmation. She's like, I used magic to get pregnant. That's not going to result in anything weird baby wise. And Doctor Strange is like, nope, I guarantee that you are actually pregnant with actual babies who definitely won't turn out to be anything else. He doesn't practice <laughs> medicine anymore, does he? He does not, which he also makes a point of mentioning in that <laughs> in that scene. So, But he's there for the birth of the babies, and it isn't until afterwards when they're like, there are too many babies. We can't deal with these babies. We need to write these babies out. Ergo, they turned out not to be real. Scarlet Witch finds out about it. She has a breakdown where she cuts all of her hair, puts on a vaguely Magneto-inspired supervillain outfit, and then goes to Magneto to become his heir. Now, this is in the 90s, so they're sort of starting Magneto back onto his villain path, but he is coming fresh off being headmaster of the New Mutants at this point. So he's not that deeply into being a supervillain again. And honestly, he spends most of his time that crossover sort of trying to get Wanda to taper things down a little bit because she's going full Silver Age then. Oh, man. Well, okay, but there's one important thing I need to know about because we, we mentioned this briefly in the cold open, but is there or is there not a villain named Master Pandemonium who has babies for hands and those babies are kind of the Scarlet Witch's imaginary children? Would I ever lie to you about something like that? Like, why bother? That is accurate, yes. Uh, Mephisto, apparently Wanda used pieces of Mephisto's soul to create the babies as per one of the retcons involving this. One of the fun <laughs> things... I, I know. One of the fun things about Maximoff retcons is unlike, you know, the Phoenix retcon tried to sort of make things work with the continuity that came before, Maximoff, re- uh, Maximoff retcons don't work that way. They're like, you know that thing you saw on panel? Never happened. Just don't worry right. about it. So very quick question. If she used bits of Mephisto, does that mean that the, the Minimovs, that the Billy and Tommy are, are also related to Damien Hellstrom somehow? Uh, yes, they would be his... Part brothers, as I understand it, I, I'm also aware that this is not a super consistent thing, but the reason Damien Hellstrom is the son of Satan is that all of the Satan figures in Marvel decided to get together to merge into a single entity and get a lady pregnant. What? <laughs> I, I, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Uh, okay, and... This may be misremembered, but I'm pretty sure it's accurate, if not always consistent. Sometimes his dad is just, I think, Satanish, Satanish. Yeah, not that Satanish, just kind of Satanish. But occasionally, yes, he is their, I don't know, eighth half brother, depending on how you're splitting up the merge Satan entity. Wow, that's 
I, I know I talk about the X-Men being being a, a continuity, Gordian, Gordian not, but I think the Avengers have them beat for, like, just direct weird. Well, I don't think any of the X-Men have married a space tree yet. I mean, I Juggernaut is in a life partnership with a terrestrial kind of tree. That is true. Okay, so I, I had one last question. Current status of the Maximoffs. Magneto's kids, not Magneto's kids. Currently, they are not Magneto's kids unless, are you okay with hearsay? I've got some hearsay for you. We're good with hearsay as long as it's explicitly hearsay. All right, this is explicitly hearsay and in no way I think canon, but... According to a leaked page from the Cancelled Visions uh, miniseries, there is a leaked page where Viv Vision was drawing her own family tree. Oh, I don't think that was leaked. I think Marvel actually gave Odd permission to release that. Oh. Because she just, she just tweeted, she just posted it on Twitter. Correct. So according to that, that did have Magneto listed as the Maximoff twins' current father, but they had... Instead of his wife as uh, their mother, they had Natalia Maximoff, who is the sister of Maria Maximoff, the woman who raised them, along with Django Maximoff, who once turned them into puppets because he does not know that you can just call your children on the phone. You don't need to trap their souls in puppets when they're not talking to you. <laughs> this is the Marvel Universe. Phones are, like, really hard for people. It's true. The X-Men couldn't figure them out for a pretty long time, so fair. So we're not the only ones who have questions. Uh, we put out a call for questions. We let you know Max was going to be on the show, and you answered us. So here's what you're wondering about. The Nerdy Jew asks on Tumblr, Is Luna, who appeared in Age of X-Men Alpha, Luna Maximoff? So I actually checked with Jordan White, who's the X-Men line editor, and he says, no, that is a different Luna. Sorry. Which makes sense because Luna is an inhuman. I mean, she was a baseline human, but then Pietro exposed her to the Terrigen Mists, which weren't supposed to work on her because she was, for some reason, a baseline human. But let's put that aside. Red Gears asks on Tumblr, How would you handle the current continuity knot of Magneto, Wanda, and Pietro, Speed, and Wiccan, and Lorna were you given supreme editorial power at Marvel? Apart, obviously, from Magneto complaining that they don't come to visit often enough. I think I would go you know, your basic Gordian knot situation and just cut through everything. Everyone's related again. Do you want an explanation? Sorry, we don't really do that. It was probably Immortus. It's always Immortus. But everyone's related, and we get a book sort of following up on that, a generation-style book, maybe a series of one-shots that just have different characters interacting with each other. I feel like it's hard to sort of build a uh, book around a family as opposed to a team. Although I guess you could do it, just call it House of M. <laughs> just to uh, reuse that title and confuse people a little. But no, I actually like that. And, you know, you mentioned the Visions series, and that made me think of the previous series, The Vision, about the Vision family. I kind of like the idea of a book about the Magneto family. Like you said, everybody's just related. Don't worry about it. But it's just family drama. It's all of their loving each other and hating each other and relying on each other and uh, rebelling from each other. But I feel like for that to work, like, I almost think Magneto should be gone. So you wait till the next time Magneto dies or is lost in the time stream or whatever and all of his kids and grandkids are just sort of left to grapple with that whole thing i know we've already done a lot looking at magneto's legacy but i feel like looking at it specifically through the eyes of his family and specifically with them interacting with each other could be kind of cool so i i will point out that we actually did get a very specifically this entire family and all of its generations focused series and that was young avengers children's crusade so i would in some ways go back to that dynamic i would like max basically just cut out completely ignore the most recent uh, retcon wherein the Maximoffs are high evolutionary offshoots of some sort. Um, and I so, so I'd keep the Magneto's kids. I would give Billy and Tommy their own book with Tommy as the initial POV character just because he's gotten much, much less development than Billy. And I would make the Maximoff twins and Magneto recurring supporting characters in that series. I would read the hell out of that book. Seriously. Man, who should write a book like that? Ooh. I mean, I assume that if I have absolute power over the Marvel Universe Max, I can just hire you to write it. Oh, yeah, I'd be all for that. All right, Max Carlton, this is your book, Marvel. Uh, you have three months till the first issue comes out. Go. And since no one but Oddkosh should be drawing Wiccan ever again because she's better at it than everyone else put together forever, she's, she's obviously on art here. Oh, yeah. 
All right. Will20 asks on Tumblr, what semi-forgotten slash underrated characters do you miss the most? And if you were asked to reintroduce them to the masses, how would you go about it story-wise? I mean, Taki, always, forever, WizKid is fantastic. I want him as a hacker. I want him as the disability punk end of the mutant revolution. And I want him destroying and taking down systems and generally yelling at people a lot. See, I'm stuck here because... I really love the Academy X kids. Uh, I'm going to mostly stick to an X-Men sphere here. I'm assuming no one wants me to talk about Matter Eater Lad, which I could <laughs> at length. But uh, probably the Academy X kids, although honestly, I don't think she's so much semi-forgotten as no one really knows what to do with her. I would really love a good Rachel Summers, Gray Summers, Gray. Or alternatively, Sarah Gray story. Oh, Jean's sister, yeah, who got killed in End of Grey's so ignominiously. Or wait, was she killed even before that by the phalanx? Maybe that was it. But regardless, yeah. I would love to see more with her and her kids because I really feel like she and her children don't get focused on even as potential X-Men in future stories because her kids were both mutants. That doesn't really get touched on much. It would be interesting to see more of. Agreed. I mean, I think many of those characters are dead, but it's Marvel. Whatever. You can bring them back. I would say Skids, Sally Blevins. Um, I'd love to see a book where she was our window into like a new modern version of the Morlocks or just the version of the Morlocks from the recent Iceman series. Oh, hard disagree. I don't think a human passing character should be the POV character in a Morlock story. Okay, well, you know, that is perhaps a valid point, but I don't know, maybe just a supporting character or something like that. I just want to see her back, and I want to see what it would be like for her to go back to the group that she was with so many years ago, having done so much in between. The Warlocks can totally be their own POV characters. I just want her there. Final question, and this one I think, Max, is all for you. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, has the Maximoff family ever been tied to the Summers family in any way? Oh boy. Okay. Wow. So this depends on where you fall in the scheme of robot paternity. So, I mean, the clearest link we have here is Lorna Dane and Alex Summers, who, despite being very, very romantically involved for very long periods of time, I don't think have ever actually gotten married. No, they tried once and it didn't go well. It very did not go well. But if you're willing to assume that robo paternity is a thing... Janet Van Dyne was in an alternate present married to Alex Summers and the two of them had a child, Katie Summers, who, much like Luna Maximoff, was a baseline human despite being the child of someone with superpowers and a mutant. She doesn't exist right now. It's a really interesting storyline, actually, but yeah, she, she just doesn't exist for the moment. Uh, but lots of people don't exist, so it's fine. It happens. But yes, those would be the two most direct links. Janet Van Dyne is vaguely Ultron's mom and therefore vaguely Billy and Tommy's, gosh, uh, great grandmother. This gets so gloriously complicated. I love it. Yeah, it's it's a fun tangled web we weave. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It is time, of course, for the Angry Claremontian narrator. Look at you, Dave Metz. Brought low by your lust for glory. Tangled in the intricate machinations that you thought would bring you to power. Little did you expect that it would be your attempt to hack into Zachary Jenkins' archives that would ultimately be your undoing. At least for next time, you now know. Protocols and files are really, really different things. And we don't just have listeners to thank. We also have Max, you. Thank you so much for being on the show, for being a guest expert. Oh, I'm glad to be here. It was a lot of fun. So where else can folks find you online and um, podcasting? Well... Uh, you can find I Do Comics About Comics on Tumblr at uh, waitingforthetea.tumblr.com. Uh, I also post them on my Twitter at a mad cartoonist. I started the Twitter account during AVX where I was a lot angrier than I am now. It's fine. Uh, I also do a podcast with my wife about Once Upon a Time. You call X-Men comic book's greatest superhero soap opera. Once Upon a Time is also a soap opera, 
somewhat less great, but lots of tangled continuity, alternate universes. It's basically a Disney mass crossover, and we get a lot into the various copyright fun Disney has made creating this TV show. And uh, I actually have a secret podcast with my wife that is available only to my Patreon subscribers. I also have a Patreon waiting for the trade. T. And we will link to all of those in the visual companion to this episode, which again, you can find at explainthexmen.com. Yeah. And uh, on a personal level, um, Waiting for the Trade is a wonderful, wonderful comic. It's If you love our style of humor and continuity, you will like this. And also, um, I think we were both on Welcome to Storybrooke, that podcast, right, Che? Yes, I definitely very distinctly remember talking about uh, people ripping out uh, unicorn hearts. And I talked about color-coded princes. Uh, yes, you were on the episode where Emma has sex with a flying monkey, Miles. I can never forget that for as long as I live, nor would I want to. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and thank you so much to everyone who came to see us at Emerald City Comic Con this weekend. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be joined by guests Vita Ayala, Seanan McGuire, and Leah Williams. Live at Emerald City Comic Con. (laughs) 